So Paul discovers that there are some Jewish Christians in Antioch, and they're claiming that unless non-Jewish people become Jewish by practicing circumcision, the Sabbath, obeying the kosher food laws, that they can't become part of Jesus' family. But Paul and Barnabas, they radically disagree. And so they take the debate to a leadership council in Jerusalem. Now there, Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, they all show from the scriptures and from their experience that God's plan was always to include the nations within his covenant people. So they write a letter requiring non-Jewish Christians to stop participating in pagan temple sacrifices, but they don't require them to adopt an ethnically Jewish identity or obey the laws in the Torah. Now, this decision was groundbreaking for the history of the Jesus movement. Jesus, he's the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the risen king of all nations. And so one's membership among his people is not based on ethnic identity or following the laws of the Torah. It's based simply on trusting Jesus and then following his teachings. And it's this multi-ethnic reality of the Jesus movement that leads us to the next theme Luke wants us to see in the missionary journeys, namely the clash of cultures between the early Christians and the Greek and Roman world. Luke records multiple clashes in Philippi, Athens, and Ephesus. Paul goes and announces Jesus as the revelation of the one true God and as the king of the world, who shows up all other gods and idols as powerless and futile. And his message is consistently viewed as subversive to the Roman way of life, and he gets accused of being a dangerous social revolutionary. These stories show how the multi-ethnic, monotheistic Jesus communities did not fit into any cultural boxes known to the Roman people. The ancient world had just never seen anything like them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm reading from uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think sometimes we are a little afraid of secular culture, right? things that are distinctly non-Christian. Maybe we don't always realize it, but, but we always, especially once you have children, right? you worry how uh, non-Christian culture is going to influence your children or your grandchildren. We have a little bit of fear about that. But we also don't always realize just how much we ourselves have already been influenced by it. I have a, a, a really close friend of mine who every third sentence out of his mouth is a movie quote. And we've had entire conversations where we've done nothing but quote stupid movies. And you know, when you really think about it, the, the movies you watch, the TV you watch, the books you read, they really shape you quite a bit as a person. And we don't always like to acknowledge that. Right? I can tell you I've been... I've been heavily influenced by things like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the books and the movies. And, and you know, maybe that's, that's easier to admit because there's really clear Christian themes in their books. They're written by a Christian man. They're, like, they're intentionally that way. I've also been hugely influenced by things like Star Wars because I'm really cool like that. <laughs> but again, even in those movies, there's, there's themes in there that are actually pretty obviously drawn from the Jewish and Christian world of thought, Right? good versus evil, light versus darkness, the, the inevitability of the defeat of evil, right? Things like that. Um, but I've also been hugely influenced by things like The Office and Scrubs, which have nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever, right? <laughs> TV shows like that have shaped my entire sense of humor. There's nothing Christian about them. But what if there actually is what if on some level there is still just a little bit of, of, of that sort of universal truth in all of those things? Paul in Greece is addressing this group of people, right? It says they're Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are like the two uh, dominant groups of thought in, in Greece and in Rome. And, and um, Epicureanism is a lot more popular, Stoicism not so much. Um, Stoic philosophy, though, has actually had a resurgence in recent years. It's become a lot more popular because it's one of the only philosophical schools that focuses on 
practice and not just theory and debate. So the whole idea behind Stoicism is to teach you how to live well no matter your circumstances. So in a world where 99% of the population live below the poverty line, right, that's a really appealing way of doing things. Um, and it's becoming popular again now because, again, people are increasingly finding that, that they can't always influence their lives the way they want. And here's this school of philosophy that teaches you how to live well and be happy in the midst of that. And so they have these, these practices that they teach, uh, things like negative visualization. So they encourage their followers to imagine what their life would be like if all the things that they love, their family, their possessions, their homes were gone which sounds really dark and bleak, but the, but the idea of it is imagine what your life is like without the things you have, and the more you do that, the more you appreciate what you already have, and you become happy with that instead of constantly striving for more. Very practical way of doing it. They also taught the dichotomy of control, right? There are things you can control, and there are things you can't control, and usually when you get upset or angry or depressed, it's because you're obsessing over the things you can't control and ignoring what you can so they taught their followers that the only thing that you can actually control is are internal things. You can control your desires, you can control your goals, and you can control how you react to things, and everything else is actually outside your ability to influence. So instead of worrying about all that, control what you want, control how you react, control what your goals are, and make sure that you're focusing on those, right? Now those are actually interesting teachings, and there's wisdom in there, and I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that Paul probably would have seen ways to take those teachings and apply them to living a Christian life, right? They're not that far off. And so within Stoicism, there's this emphasis also on, on responsibility and civic duty and self-sufficiency, right? These are all really appealing ideas, both to, to ancient Christians and to probably modern ones. So I'm sure he's heard they're talking and it's kind of intrigued by what they're saying. And then there's the Epicureans, and, and um, it's a very different worldview, but, but the thing is Epicureanism is the religion of the modern world, and people don't realize it. And it has been for about the past 200 years. It's a fundamentally materialistic worldview that says that if God exists, he's far away and doesn't really concern himself with what happens here. You can see how that has influenced a lot of our society, um, and, and it's generally focused on uh, pleasure and tranquility, and not pleasure in like a hedonistic sense, not like go drink all you want, eat all you want, that's all that matters, but, but pleasure in a much more refined idea of making sure that your life is comfortable, that you have all that you want, that you, you gain as much as you can gain, that sort of thing. And you can see how that has shaped our culture more than most people would like to realize. Either way, both of those worldviews are extremely common today, even if people don't always understand that. Right? Epicureanism says God's far away and not very involved. Stoicism says the opposite. God's all around us, but God is also everything. Right? Paul is talking to people who see the world in ways that are very similar to the way most modern people see it. And so at first they, they dismiss him, right? They call him a babbler, which, which means literally someone who doesn't have, who just has like little scraps of knowledge. Basically they say he's an idiot, right? He's saying stupid things, don't listen to him. And then they just, instead of you know, dis dismissing him and not hearing him again, they, they think this could be good entertainment. And so they bring him to this big hill that overlooks the marketplace because you've got to understand, right, what they're doing is they're gathering people to hear him, not because they want to hear the truth or because they want to really like learn from him, but because they think it's going to be fun to watch him talk. 
Right? This is entertainment in ancient Athens, hearing the guy speak. So they're, they're not necessarily gathering to hear the truth or learn from him or because they think he's going to say something that will change their minds. They're gathering because they're bored and they want to hear something different. They're not necessarily there to learn. How many teachers can relate to that, right? <laughs> what you're getting in this story, to me the important part is not so much what Paul says, but how he goes about teaching these people what the gospel is. Starting in verse 24, he starts talking in words that the Greeks would understand, right? The whole idea of a God who, who is self-sufficient apart from us, right? A God who does not need humans to feed him on the altar or build his temple. That's very Greek, right? The, the ancient Eastern world that, that Paul would have grown up in, all of those, those nations that, that have now become the modern Middle East, their ancient gods, they believed they had to feed them at the altar. Right? They believed that the food you offered on, on, on the altar to the idol was eaten by the god, that the god needed them to care for them. The Greeks disagree. So Paul begins by saying, look, I agree with you on some things. You guys were right about some of this stuff. God doesn't need us to feed him. God doesn't need us to build his temple. And then he goes in verse 27, and this stuff about, um, you know, the God, God making us so that we will instinctively reach out for him and find him, right? That strikes a chord with the Greeks, because Greeks are into philosophy, and philosophy is all about seeking out the truth and the good. He's appealing to the things he knows are already popular with them. And then he has this line, right, that God is not far from any of us. And that, again, to the Stoics at least, that's very much a core part of their philosophy. It's one of the key points of difference between them and the other philosophies, that, that, that actually gods are not far from us. They're here. And then he does this really crazy thing in verse 28. He has this line, right? For him, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, this has become a really famous line in Christianity, right? We've used, it gets used in official prayers all the time. It's even occasionally on people's walls. It's a great line. And Paul is quoting, not the Hebrew Old Testament, but he's quoting a Greek poem called the Hymn to Zeus. This is a line from a, a pagan religious hymn to the god Zeus. He's straight up taking their religious texts and using it to prove his point. And the incredible thing is, right, he's, he's not like got a prepared speech here or anything. He's just standing up in front of a crowd and talking, which means he knows their religious texts well enough to quote them to them and to know which parts actually he thinks applies to the real God and which parts don't. He spent time studying what they believe and how they, how they uh, sing to their gods and how they worship. He knows their culture inside and out. And really, it's not until he starts talking about the resurrection that he, he loses them, right? And that loses them because the Greeks are, are the, the core belief of all Greek philosophy, all Greek religion, is that the, the body is bad and the soul is good. And so the afterlife consists of a disembodied soul off somewhere in the afterlife, in the underworld, somewhere else. But, but that the highest good you can achieve is to discard the body and, and focus on the soul. And, and Paul and the gospel are emphatic that actually, no, the body is good and creation is good. And the promise of the gospel is not that we go away somewhere, but that one day God raises us back to life here. And we live eternity embodied in these new bodies that God's going to give us. And that sounds just as crazy and weird to them back then as it does to us today. 
maybe even more so. And that's where he loses them. But up until that point, he is, he is speaking their language, both literally because he's talking to them in Greek, but also figuratively. He's taking all of these cultural motifs and these important beliefs that they have that have nothing to do with his own religious background, and he's using them and saying, look, you guys are right about this and this and this and this and this and this, and I really like what you do over here, and this is great. You guys were spot on in that, but, but here's where you're wrong. He doesn't just dismiss all of their beliefs out of hand. He first goes through and says, listen, you guys have, have been seeking after the truth all your lives, and you found parts of it. Let me show you the rest. That's why he starts off by pointing out the, the altars to the unknown God, right? Because if you are going to believe in a bunch of different gods, and if each God is responsible for different parts, you might as well cover all your bases and say, well, we're just going to build this one here in case we missed one. <laughs> and he's, he's almost implying, like, look, this altar you built to the unknown God, let me tell you who that God is and why he's more important than all the other ones you seem to worship. Everything he does in the beginning is to set them up not only to like him, but also to see that, that he can even reason from their religious beliefs and their philosophies to get to the gospel. Right? When he goes to the Jewish people, he takes the Hebrew scriptures and he says, look, your own scriptures prove that Jesus was the Messiah. But now, all of a sudden, at this point in Acts, he has to suddenly go for the first time to people who are not Jewish people, and he has to figure out how to tell them about Jesus. And the challenge is, is that they don't have any of the same background that the Jewish people do. Resurrection is a core Jewish belief. The idea of a Messiah is a core Jewish belief. The idea of the kingdom of God is a core Jewish belief. Paul has a lot to work with there. But when he goes to the Greeks... He's got to wonder, okay, how am I going to do this? And lo and behold, what he discovers is I can actually take all the things that they already believe and all the things they already teach, and I can still use them. And I can still use them to explain who Jesus was and why it matters and why the gospel is true. And so that tells us two things. First, it tells us that Christians don't have a monopoly on truth. And we tend to think we do. Now, we may have better access to truth. We, we may, because we know that God is the ultimate source of all truth, right? we, we may be able to evaluate better whether something is true or false. Right? We have an advantage. But if it's true that everyone is made in the image of God, and if it's true that, that everyone is sort of instinctively searching for the truth in some way, it has to also be true that everyone's going to find little pieces of it here and there. which means we, we can't just dismiss things that aren't explicitly Christian in origin, even if we have to take them with a grain of salt. Right? Paul recognized that, yes, in God we do live and move and have our being. It's just that that God is not Zeus. It's a different God. You guys got this part right. You just directed it towards the wrong person. Right? We can recognize, for instance, that that scientists are grasping after the truth and they discover things that are true even if maybe they don't always understand the full truth or, or, or their discipline doesn't allow them to talk about the truth in its fullness or things like that. But we can understand that there is truth in what they say. 
The second point is that we can and should understand how the world outside the church thinks. Because we can't actually communicate the gospel to people outside the church if we don't understand how they think. It's not possible. See, all too often we assume that everyone sees the world the same way we do. And the reason we do that is because for a very long time in our country, they pretty much did. For a long time in the Western world, the influence of Christianity was so pervasive that, that really everyone shared the same assumptions about the world, and that's just not true anymore. Even our, like, a, like the Christian education materials that, that we can buy and use often make the same assumptions. It's a problem. When I was teaching confirmation earlier this year, I had a problem with the materials I was using because it made assumptions about what the kids already believed that didn't apply anymore. And I had to back up and teach more basic stuff that I wouldn't have thought I'd have to teach. Which means that that gap between what we believe about the world and what the world believes about the world is getting wider and wider. So for instance, right, we, we assume that God will bring justice on all evil in the end. That in the end, God will make everything right. We assume that there is life after death. We assume that God is at work in the world. And it is impossible to overstate how much those assumptions change the way that we think and the way that we act. They affect every single aspect of our lives. And quite a few people outside these walls do not think those things are true. Imagine how you would approach the justice system differently if you didn't think God would eventually bring all evil to justice. The whole concept of a justice system that, that, that believes you are innocent until proven guilty and that would rather 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man go to jail is founded on the idea that it's okay if we don't get everybody because God will, right? We can be secure in that because we know that God brings justice. But if that goes away, you have to take a different approach, don't you? We have to actually understand what assumptions non-Christians are making about the world. And then we work from there to communicate the truth. So, right, environmentalism is a really good example of this. Right? Christians make two unique assumptions about the environment we live in. Right? We, we assume, on the one hand, that God will one day restore the whole world to its original state that that is what's going to happen in the end. God will come and restore creation and all the damage we do to it will be undone. We also assume that God has always intended for humans to order and govern and care for the world. That we have a sense of stewardship, that we have a responsibility to it. As we have these two assumptions about it that, that the rest of the world does not share. So right, while we should absolutely care about environmental issues because we are God's stewards of creation. We have a divinely ordained responsibility to care for the world that God made. We don't necessarily have to feel as much anxiety and fear as other people do. And that's a real thing, by the way. It maybe is not uh, as prevalent of a problem here in Texas as it is in other places, but, but around the nation, do you know 60 to 70% of our teenagers in the country feel a deep sense of despair and anxiety over the state of the environment? This is a real problem. And we can't just dismiss it out of hand because doing that is just unkind and unloving. We have to actually talk about it. 
And see, here's why Christians don't have to be so, so terrified about this. Not because we're going to deny that there's a problem, but because we understand that God is at work in the world and that this is God's creation and that in the end, God restores all things. It makes a difference to how you approach it. But non-Christians also have a really different understanding of, of what the best thing for the natural world is, right? There, there's a tendency to lean into complete lack of human influence, right, as the best possible state for the environment, to let it go completely wild and let nature take care of itself. But what if Christians would come back and say, actually, we're not so sure that's how God meant for it to work. Because he created us for the purpose of governing his creation and stewarding it and caring for it. And maybe we're not supposed to let it run wild. You see, we, we see things differently. And these are fundamental assumptions about the world we live in that are radically different from how the rest of the world sees it. And if we don't take the time to, to not only understand how the rest of the world thinks, but also to see where in their thinking they have spotted truths that we have missed, we're going to have a really hard time communicating with them. And we'll become more and more isolated and the more isolated we become, the less we can share the gospel. The more fearful we become. Not only do we become more fearful, but, but the more isolated we, we become, the more other people are afraid of us, right? No one likes the religious weirdos who don't talk to people. That's why we don't go to Utah. We have to be willing to not only engage with culture, but to understand it and, and, and to know it on a deep level and to know it well enough to know where, where the secular world might see truth in things that we have overlooked. Paul was very clearly able to do that. He's reading Greek religious texts about pagan gods that he knows aren't real, and he thinks, look, they still got this part right, and they got this part right, and we've got nothing in our Bible like this, but that makes sense. I think that's true. See, our culture already influences us. We are already shaped and molded by the world we live in. We're shaped and molded by the entertainment we watch, by the books we read, by the people we spend our time with. It's already happening. We don't need to be afraid of it. We need to actually embrace it and to understand that we can be faithful Christians and, and, and we, can, we can avoid having ourselves you know, torn away from Christian influence by the world we live in. We can embrace the influence of the world and see where there is truth in what's going on around us even as we also see where the world gets it wrong. It's not about severing off your, your ties to the culture. It's about seeing where they get it wrong and where they get it right. And then learning to communicate the gospel from that point of view. Because you see, we, we, just, we have to understand. We see the world so differently now than people who who are not in church, than people who were not raised in church, which is a growing number of the population. And it is hard, truly, to understand just how differently we see the world we live in unless you actually go and talk to them, <laughs> unless you actually open your ears when you listen to them. And our temptation all too often is just to dismiss some of the things that they say out of hand. But the reality is, there are times when they will have grasped something that is true that we have not. 
because they too are made in the image of God and they are seeking after truth just like we are. And that means they're going to find things that are true. Paul understood that very clearly. And it didn't make a huge difference for him right away, right? Like some people still didn't believe because he is, after all, trying to get them to believe that someone came back from the dead. That's a hard sell. But some of them did. Some of them followed him. And maybe more importantly, he kept learning. We know he ended up planting churches all over Greece, in Corinth, in Philippi, in Thessalonia. He puts churches all over that part of the world, in large part because he figured out how to talk to them. He figured out how to talk like a normal person in Greece. Most of what he says is stuff that would not have sounded outlandish to them. We all know those Christians who don't talk like normal people, right? They have a hard time engaging folks outside the church. Paul figured it out, and it worked. And sometimes the only thing that happened is he got like four or five people to follow him afterwards, but then what he did is he, he left those people behind, and, and they grew the church. He's planting little seeds of God's kingdom everywhere he goes. And he's perfectly fine to accept that sometimes it's not going to be a huge result and sometimes the change won't be immediate and sometimes it will take years before the fruit of his labor is evident. But he at least understands how to communicate across that cultural barrier. And it will cause him problems at times. We're going to see next week that he gets himself in a lot of trouble in some places. But he never really walks away from this strategy of, of taking taking the, the good things of the culture he's preaching to, helping them to see, hey, you've got some things right, and here's where you're wrong. But he always starts with what they understand and what they believe and works from there. That's how you do it. We don't have to be afraid of, of the secular culture around us. And really, we can't afford to be because the, the balance is shifting and secular culture is growing in the West and religious culture is shrinking. And if we want to have any hope of being the light in the darkness, we have to learn how to talk like normal people. We have to learn how to talk to them in terms that they will understand even if they have never set foot in a church. That's how you shine a light in the darkness. You take the things they already know and work with them. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.